Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream Q&A segment, 120th edition, and um, we survived the winter. We did survive the winter. Yep. It is so springy out there. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's just jump right into it. Sure. Uh, we, we, ran, we, we ran long. We'll, we'll keep this shortish. Um, but uh, just a reminder, you can ask questions at... I have no idea. Uh, submissions.com. www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. I have no questions. You always have questions. I sometimes have questions. Yeah. This from, um, you get access to the Dark Horse Discord um, community. Uh, and soon we are going to have a, a new, a brand new kind of community on offer uh, for people uh, that will be um, anti-fragile no, that's not the right word. I mean, it will be anti-fragile, but it will be um, robust Robust to censorship in a way that the big te tech platforms aren't. But for now, uh, the community is on Discord, and every week, uh, some of them uh, pose questions, and then they vote on them, and the highest ranked question uh, is what we start the Q&A with. So this week it is, does evolutionary theory predict that the woke will win the culture war because they're willing to resort to ruthlessness and riling up the masses to a degree that the opposition would not? Um, depends what you mean by a win. I do think there is a way mm. in which... Uh, a coalition is liable to re-evolve that actually uh, meritocracy, and I'm not suggesting that we have a meritocracy, but we have a meritocratic thread in our economic system and our political system, and it creates people who are not on the winning side who will inevitably form a coalition. But the coalition is unstable. And so the point is, as they win, they will tear themselves apart. And we have seen this. The left eats its own. And uh, we have been them, in fact. And so mm -hmm. the prediction is, yes, they will uh, beat expectations. But in the end, their fate is sealed. And the problem is, it leaves the door open for the rent-seeking elites to fill the power vacuum that will... And how? Yes, as if the rent-seeking elites had any trouble getting power. Yeah, but they're moving right in. Yep. They're just—they're uh, gonna—they're gonna create a a new thing, having created a old thing that turned out to be fragile and full of gaping holes, both uh, truly and logistically and intellectually. And uh, you know, it worked so badly the first time. Let's go for a second round. But you can actually, I was thinking about saying something in the uh, the main discussion about this, but you can see their, their, their ploy in these symbolic nominations. And I'm not arguing, uh, in the case of the current nominee for the Supreme Court, she's obviously qualified. Mm-hmm. But the pretense was made that she was the most qualified person when before her nomination was announced, in fact, during the campaign, Biden said he would nominate a... Uh, a in fact, that's one of the questions here, um, which is more of a comment. So we might but, as well yeah. address it. Um, considering that Biden explicitly stated that he was going to nominate a black woman to the court, being a woman is one of the characteristics that qualified her for the nomination. Being unable to define the term should have disqual disqualified her then and there. 
It's a yeah, fair point. It's, yeah, and I was I was thinking about this specifically. You know, I think she's she's clearly qualified. You know, she has the qualifications. There's just no there's you know there's just no questioning that. Um, but there are a lot of people who are clearly qualified. And the fact is that Biden was like, oh wow, who how will I choose? Well, I'm going to start with two immutable characteristics. And and thus limit and limit the place. And frankly, um, Katanji Brown Jackson appears to be so so qualified um, that if I were her, I would be upset that I was there following him saying that he was going to nominate a black woman because clearly some number of people will always think that she is there because she's a black woman, and she might well have won on her merits. Well, in fact, she won is going to win presumably on her merits having been given a handicap to begin with. Let's let's do this carefully. Okay. She is obviously qualified. Biden announced that he had found the most qualified candidate. I didn't know that he had said that. He my, did. Yeah, okay. And actually it set off Jordan Peterson who mm. Said something on Twitter that got him in some hot water. What he said was exactly right, mm -hmm. which is that having announced in advance these characteristics, the likelihood that she is the most qualified candidate is low. Um, Might be right, exactly. Yeah. But the basic point is: look, you you eliminated anybody who wasn't female and wasn't black, and so yeah. assuming that qualification is equally distributed across populations, which frankly is unlikely, not because of inherent differences between people, but because histories of oppression mean that differential access to the things that make you qualified is a real phenomenon even still. So having set out those characteristics, um, Biden presumably doesn't even know if he found the most qualified candidate. Uh, and we know that there is a history, we don't know, but we can surmise that there is a history in this administration of prioritizing symbolism over qualification, mm. right? So we have- <laughs> What could you possibly be talking about? I could be talking about Rachel Levine, who might be the most qualified person for the assistant secretary of health position that she got. I don't think so. Let's just say it was pretty clear that the nomination was about something else. It was about- uh, prioritizing symbolism over something else. We can say the same thing about the appointment of uh, Sam Brinton to be the head of nuclear waste disposal at the Department of Energy, which I must tell you is going to sound to lots of people like that's a mundane job. It is anything but. Yeah, right? I mean, we talked about this at some length a couple of episodes ago. Right? I know, but I think people do not fully appreciate how much is at stake in the way we deal with nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, you need a candidate who understands, candidate for that job, who understands the importance to the future of humanity of getting all nuclear waste that is cool enough to move out of the cooling pools and into dry cask storage to get it out of the state where it requires constant vigilance to keep it cool enough not, not to catch fire. Right. Um, right. And so, in any case, the fact that in the middle of a pandemic, um, Biden made a symbolic appointment to the assistant secretary of health position and with a... Who then went on to win someone's woman of the year, which is just... It was USA Today, and she at the same time won the Babylon Bee's man of the year, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is what got 
Tucker Carlson suspended from Twitter for <laughs> Did he retweet the Babylon Bee or something? Well, he retweeted uh Kyle no, it was a uh, uh Charlie Kirk. Okay. Who basically described Rachel Levine's having lived as a man, produced a family, etc. before transitioning. Father of several children, right? Or at right. least two. Um and yeah. father. Uh and contributed sperm to those children. Right. So, father of those children. So Charlie Kirk made that point. What? Yeah, you wanna you wanna put up uh All right, we are uh, waiting for Zach to Father bring. of Children, Woman of the Year. All right. At any moment, Zach is going to bring up the tweet that got Tucker Carlson suspended from. I'm Twitter. very excited. I've never seen this. I'm so. I'm, I'm, it's really I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, That's really very, small. Very tiny. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. He he says. I guess almost no one just listens to this, but um, he says. Oh. Uh, but wait, both these tweets are true. And he's referencing Charlie Kirk's tweet here. Richard Levine spent 54 years of his life as a man. He had a wife and a family. He transitioned to being a woman in 2011. Joe Biden appointed Levine to be a four-star admiral. And now USA Today has named Rachel Levine as a woman of the year. Where are the feminists? Yeah, it's it's actually one of the things we have not talked about is um, I'm not shocked, but it is noteworthy that most of the so the people who are benefiting from this the trans activism not like i'm not talking about the le legit trans people who are trying to live their damned lives with some with some dignity and yep. privacy of which there are many some of whom we know um but this is mostly um men declaring themselves women and walking into women's spaces and taking some of the hard-won rights of women. And that would look like a patriarchal move if ever there was one. But who mostly is defending these people? It's women. It's, it's mostly middle-class women who are defending these people and saying that if you don't, you're an ist. You're a whatever kind of ist. Who freaking knows? But it's both not surprising and so disheartening. You know, I, there are a lot of feminists, mostly people who call themselves rad fans, radical feminists, who are saying no way, no how. And, you know, that's, I feel that what what I understand of the history of, of rad fans, of radical feminists, is that it is um, too agnostic on the biology, that it uh, that it understands sex, but that it doesn't understand the downstream stuff of, of gender being tied together and being evolutionary and being not nearly as much your fate as your sex, but that it's still it's still relevant to your sex. And you can be gender nonconforming all you want, um, but that doesn't mean that there's not an evolutionary component. But the Radfems are completely right on the trans activism stuff. And yet so many other women who would have been five or 10 years ago talking about the glass ceiling and really hoping for more female representation on the court, for instance, or, you know, first female president are cheering this on. And it's, it's bad for everyone, but it's obviously bad for women. Yeah. I mean, Rachel Levine gets woman of the year. Right. It's, what the actual it's, hell? It's, it's obviously bad for women and the other thing is that the willingness to make symbolic appointments to positions that actually matter right like you know we've got a pandemic with a dangerous virus yeah okay to appoint a symbolic person to the job of assistant secretary for health at such a moment is to effectively say look 
it doesn't really matter who's in the position as long as they're above some threshold of qualification. Um, same thing you could say for uh, Sam Brinton and hmm. the nuclear waste question. Now, in the case of Katanji uh, Brown Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, we are dealing with somebody who's very qualified, but again, right? What rests on the Supreme yeah, it's, Court's it's ability? Different, right? It, it's 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 different in that she appears to actually have the the qualifications. It, I, I I'm not even sure that that's what makes it different because okay. the problem is there too. So we've got Assistant Secretary of Health, the person in charge of nuclear waste Price. disposal, yeah. and a candidate for a Supreme Court seat in the middle of an era where the most important issues are being adjudicated, right? Like mm -hmm. free speech is um, uh, in jeopardy as a result of novel environments. So the point is they're really saying qualified enough above a certain threshold, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. In all of these cases, it matters dramatically, right? F from the point of view of having a court that can protect the rights of a population, yep. including uh, women of color, mm -hmm. right? You need as qualified a person as you can get, and even that may not be sufficient. And so the idea okay. that you would limit the categories to do something symbolic rather than figure out, all right, this is a, an era in which a great deal is at stake. You know, we need to find the best person, and what actually makes it different is that the we need best the best person for the job, and that means in part understanding the different ways that problems show up and figuring out how to actually think through lots of steps right. and not just being able to say, well, I've got this wealth of knowledge because of my education. And therefore, if you tell me what I need to do right here in a very limited way, then I can do it. And then I can do this. That's not a smarter, wise person, right. although they may well have gotten all the accolades and the grades at school. And there is another danger here, which is that when at the very top, we are modeling the behavior of using uh, demographic considerations to figure out who's qualified, that that may actually be mirrored all the way down the line, yes. right? And so the question of, yes. you know, all right, Sam Brinton took the relevant courses, right? Did he did he do actually well, or did the same characteristics that caused him to be appointed to his position cause him to get a pass in those classes? And if, I'm not saying. He didn't do well in them. I'm saying we don't know because right. there is now this instinct to take people with certain demographic characteristics and declare them qualified whether they are or not. Right. And we, I mean, we, we know, we know of cases, individual cases of this having happened, for instance, at Evergreen, we yep. were still there, right? You know, deans coming to faculty and saying, why did you write such and such a narrative evaluation of this student? Well, because that's how they did, and this class was like this never happened to us. Yeah. Um, but um, so in classes that really were really were very quantitative in nature, and um, you know you can argue that test questions are unfair, this, that, or other, right? But um, you know it's 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 one thing in an English class, right? It's, it's it can be very hard to figure out what the assessment's supposed to look like, and you can have a real sense of like that's not the grade he should have gotten, um, and sometimes you're going to be right, and I've certainly seen cases like that. Um, but in a class in which there are tests that everyone is taking and there isn't a hue and cry about like that test was ridiculous, you know, the, the, quest, the answers were wrong or it had nothing to do with what we learned or you taught us the opposite or whatever, right? Like in a, in a class where 
the vast majority of people were like, yeah, that was fair. And yeah, I didn't do as well as I could have, but that's on me. Um, when you have administration coming to faculty saying that person needs to get a better assessment. Well, but they didn't do better. Right. Well, but that person, you've seen the color of their skin, haven't you? They need to be given a better assessment. That is anti-meritocratic, anti-intellectual, anti-democratic, anti-everything we should be caring about. We know that's happening at least at one little podunk experimental college in the Pacific Northwest, and we have heard stories of it happening lots of other places as well. So, you know, that that is the end of education and of being able to tell anything about what a person can do based on transcripts. And of course, we know this to be the case. Yeah, there's that. And it's, of course, doing no favor to people who are, are benefiting, especially if you can get all the way through the system on right. the basis that you deserve to pass rather than you earned it. Right. Um, and, you know, so... It's not that it's a simple problem to solve, but it's a problem you have to solve. And at the point that we're putting important things like how nuclear waste is going to be disposed of or how we're to deal with the pandemic or how we're going to navigate the question of um, of freedom of speech in 2022, these are vital roles. And, you know, again, the most qualified person might not be good enough for the job. Right. Taking anything less is, yes. is insane. Exactly. All right. Oh my God, my computer is flipping out on me here. Um, Next question. Uh, I am reading Ian McGilchrist's new masterwork, The Matter with Things. I think this. I think I heard this is like a three thousand page tome. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Maybe that's a different book, but that sounds like McGilchrist, doesn't it? (laughs) Like he's written another amazing book, and he surfaces coherence, logic, correspondence and consensus as components which in the ven overlay middle which in the ven overlay middle constitute shared reality sophistry is coherent and can achieve various percentage of consensus but no correspondence with physical data love you both yeah it's good yeah um, that is good um and that may be its hallmark is that it is the, so- uh, the sophist not yeah 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 i like that so uh we haven't we haven't if even you, seen this you, book yet, but so he, it's got McGilchrist talking about coherence, logic, correspondence, and consensus. Um, that um, you have shared reality when correspondence, coherence, and consensus all meet up. Um, sophistry being coherent and they can have consensus, but no correspondence with physical data. Yeah, it's good. It sure is. Next, have you heard of Dean Wigington? or reviewed geoengineeringwatch.org. He talks about the missing insects issue that Brett mentioned recently with Chris Martinson as being a potential consequence of climate engineering. Given the grave consequences, were such operations ongoing, do you think it's worth investigating? I don't know anything about, I've never heard of this guy or this site, geoengineeringwatch.org. Do you know anything about? I don't. I'm curious about anything that contributes. Um, My instinct is... uh, pesticides are probably the leading issue yeah um but yeah yeah, i would be i would be up for understanding uh, any contributing factor and it really it it does suggest quite an emergency yep uh well i've pulled up the site but it's too there's too much to assess right in the moment so so what do they mean geoengineering though 
Well, I mean, I mean, you can show if you want, Zach, what I've, so I've just pulled it up. This is the first time I've ever been on this site. Um, um, engineering wildfires, creating storms, jet spraying, tree die off, runaway methane society uh, scenario, rather. Let's, let's see what engineering wildfires means. Um, the climate engineering cabal has relentlessly cut the flow of moisture into much of the U.S. West. Ionosphere heater-induced high-pressure heat domes and constant jet-sprayed aerosol dispersions are core to the equation. I am doubtful about this. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, Oops. let's put it this way. I'm open to anything that is evidence-based and plausible, but uh, I think there's a lot of discussion about potentially engineering climate. I don't know that... Uh, much is taking place. Yeah. And with regard to the massive insect die-off, which is empirically demonstrated and which, you know, every, every line of thinking tells you that as that happens, then so too will fall all the insectivorous creatures. Then so too will fall all the you know carnivorous on insects creatures. Then, to, you know, everything, every, everything will fall. Um, and you don't need geoengineering to explain the insect die-off. Right. Um, it, it, that's not to say it's not possible, but you don't need it as an explanatory factor. Yep. Okay. When you went to Evergreen, was it clear to you that you wanted to teach, that you had it in you to teach, that you had something worth teaching, and how you wanted to teach? Well, that's a book-length question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start. Um, I got an offer at Evergreen at the same time that I got an offer at another school, at a private liberal arts college. I was lucky to get two, two tenure-track faculty offers at the same time. Uh, and I had applied to them because, um, yes, I thought that what I wanted to do was um, combine research with education and not be pretending to educate and only be allowed access to students in the way that most faculty at R1 uh, universities and big research universities have. Um, both Brett and I, as graduate students, uh, in order to pay our way through graduate school, uh, were, were given, as all um, U of M biology PhD students were at the time, um, I think it was like five years, 10 semesters worth of uh, TAing. Um, so we had done several, I guess we both did all 10 of our semesters of TAing. And boy, the first time, I think my first, I think my first teaching at Michigan was or the second semester of intro bio. And I got up in front of a bunch of mostly pre-meds and pre-dentists and, you know, pre-nursing, pre-health kids and just thought, I don't want to do this. I have no interest in being in front of people. I want to, I want to go work with animals in the rainforest and then write privately and never be in front of an audience at all. And it turns out that there was just so much to be done and that the, that the brains of the undergrads, to whom I was very close in age at that point, were extraordinary. And it was just a really easy way to meet a whole lot of new people's approaches to the world and help them upgrade what it is that they sensed about the world and how they made sense of it. Um, so I kind of fell in love with it, much to my surprise. Uh, did I think uh, that I had something worth teaching? Yeah. 
Um, by then, I, I was I was certain of it. And um, how you wanted to teach—that's something that, although both Brett and I did, you know, TA'd at Ever at Michigan, and I had also done. By the time I got the Evergreen job, I'd done a study abroad course uh, with an independent outfit in Panama for a month that I that I loved, tropical animal behavior class, and. I had a sense from that of how you could teach when you weren't constrained by being underneath a faculty member who said, okay, you have to do these, you know, these discussion sections and this and this and this. So I had some ideas and you had some ideas and we both benefited from knowing each other and having had wildly different experiences in classrooms ourselves, in school ourselves. But both of us were floored. We're really surprised by how much you could do with a model that was evergreens that allowed faculty full freedom. And so that was the thing, uh, how you wanted to teach. I had some ideas, but I couldn't even begin to imagine before I had been doing it for a little bit uh, what all was possible. Yeah, uh, that covers a lot of what I would say. I believe I knew, hey Zach, um, <laughs> I believe I knew that I had something worth teaching and I knew from teaching at Michigan as a graduate student that I could do it. I also knew that yeah. I was going to have trouble uh, as you mm. uh, ascend the academic ladder, you have to do a lot of teaching that is from a textbook effectively, you know, teaching of courses that the the university wants taught and teaching the received wisdom. Right. Yeah. And I was going to have a very hard time with that. And I will say that my first job at Evergreen they had a lack of a faculty um, member or a lot, they needed a faculty member to teach science and mm -hmm. they said, can you do it? And I was excited and they said, write a proposal. And I was a little floored that I could write any proposal that I wanted, but I did. I wrote the craziest thing I could think of, um, which... Uh, what was it? What was the first program? First program was adaptation, the study of organisms, mechanisms, and ideas. Yes. And the idea was that these were parallel things. And mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be rejected um, because it was too far out there. And it wasn't. And then I had 25, maybe it was 30 students show up. And I, I was suddenly liberated to do anything I wanted. And I just started leading them through this thing and it turned into as a very good group of students yeah. and we went on some good field trips and anyway um you know it was uh it was a very very good first experience and that program evolved into sort of my flagship adaptation program which mm -hmm. i continued to teach for my whole 14 years at evergreen but it was clear from that moment that if you took off the constraints that there was a tremendous amount to be done, that it was very, very rewarding work and um, that, you know, that I could figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's something that I had never quite put together listening to you um, talk about it. You got hired as a, as a visitor at first. Yep. And you were given all of the freedom right up front. Right up front. Because they didn't they weren't slotting you into someone else's program. You you did do some of that yep. later on. But I, who had been hired as, you know, as the, the way that you want to be hired, right? The way that you dream about being hired, was slotted into teaching freshwater ecology. Yep. And I was like, I don't know anything about freshwater ecology. This is really not what I do. I've never even I've never lived in the Pacific Northwest before. You want me to teach about 
macroinvertebrate and stream ecology and like water stuff. And like I had, I had done some water chemistry as some part of my PhD, just of these, you know, these little phytotomata that the, the frogs lived in. But that was about it. Like this was just not my scene at all. And I was able to turn it to some degree. Yeah. But that was the first two quarters teaching at Evergreen. And I was like, oh, this isn't nearly as expansive and amazing as I was expecting. And then I got to do my own animal behavior program that I got to design entirely from scratch in the spring of that year. I'm like, ah, oh, here we go. Here we yeah. Go. Well, two uh, things show up in the story that are important. One, Evergreen, Heather and I sometimes say Evergreen, um, they, the founders broke every rule and half the ways that they broke those rules were brilliant and half of it didn't work out. And the problem with Evergreen is that nobody ever went and fixed the stuff that didn't work. The, the stuff, yeah. the, the stuff that they broke uh, productively was great. One of the things that they broke productively was they eliminated faculty rank. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the idea was I did have, even as a visitor, I had full rights as a faculty member as long as they kept rehiring me. That's right. right? Yep. And I, be, my nature was such that I took advantage of it. You know, I, no, in a good way. Yeah. That can sound like you took advantage no, of the no, system. I, you did I, not I take advantage. I behaved like a full faculty member. Mm -hmm. The way Evergreen did it that was stupid was they never gave you a title that made sense to anybody who wasn't there. Though in order yeah. to break... Yeah the uh, the faculty rank problem that exists at other colleges, which they successfully did, they decided everybody was going to be a member of the faculty, which makes you sound like you're lower than an adjunct. Yeah. Right? And that was very destructive. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, it was one of these cases where you could easily have fixed that problem. Yeah. You could have just said, okay, you're a professor, whether you're a visitor or, or not. But, mm -hmm. um, but in your case, they had an on onboarding mechanism because it was a little because not giving yep. you any uh, help to figure out what to do with the liberty that a evergreen professor has. They had an onboarding process which served you badly because yeah. they slotted you into teaching something that wasn't your thing, right? Right, and you would have had no trouble figuring out what to do if they just said, you know, hey, name your course and you teach it, which is what they did with me right. because in my case, they were facing not enough professors and they would th yeah they they, were, need, they just needed. Um, they had a bunch of students who were going who needed who wanted to do upper division science. They right. knew that they had this need for upper division science seats, and they're like, "Just do do something that's upper division do science. Do something. Try yeah. not to embarrass us." And the point was, <laughs> it worked so How about well. You evergreen trying to embarrass us, right? Well, that, that's the thing. Is they were ready to accept something lackluster if it gave mm -hmm. students somewhere to go and some sort of productivity. Yeah. In my case, they gave me exactly what I needed, which was yeah. total freedom to figure out what to teach and how to teach it. And um, that resulted in, you know, I quickly started to build a reputation and then my classes were always overflowing and they got sort of addicted to rehiring me because it took care of a lot of students who wanted right. somewhere to go and I would have and something. And bonus, they were actually getting educated. Right. So Not just um, accruing credits. So anyway, it's funny. Uh, you would have been better off in my situation, mm -hmm. even though it was, you know, I definitely uh, came in through the skylight rather than the front door. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Next question. Have either of you read Atlas Shrugged? Thoughts? You know, I haven't. Um, back in high school, my parents were like, you probably should read some Anne Rand at some point. And I just, I didn't. I read a lot of stuff, but I'd never, I never, I didn't. 
I haven't. I have, sh- I have shrugged off <laughs> Anne Rand. Um, and yes, I should probably have uh, have read a bit. But yeah. Oh boy. Um, I'm gonna. F- this is written a little bit telegraphically, so I'm gonna expand it a little bit. Uh, my son is applying to post secondary school. Fax free. I like that construction. Fax free. Mm-hmm. Fax free, and not sure what he wants to study. He kept all sciences and maths, which I think means that he took them all. Um, So this must be in Canada with the new Ontario Bill 67 and mandatory vax. I don't know what to suggest to him. So there was another, excuse me, there was another question about, I thought there was another question about um, Ontario Bill 67. Uh, Maybe not, but I I have it. I I had not heard of it. Have you heard of it? No. It is. Here we go. And you can show my screen if you want, Zach. Uh, Bill 67, Racial Equity in the Education System Act 2022. Um, Some of the highlights are the minister will direct a board to develop its anti-racism accountability report. If in the opinion of the minister, there's indication the board's new teacher induction program does not include anti-racism and racial equity training. Um... We have the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities Act, which already existed. I, I was hoping that was a new Orwellian thing, but that already existed, is amended to add a new section 117.1, which sets out anti-racism and racial equity requirements that apply to every college of applied arts and technology and every university that receives ongoing operating funds from the government for the purposes of post-secondary education. And on and on and on. I have not read the whole thing, uh, but uh, you get the gist. Yes. So um, this mother has a son thinking about college, doing some science and math, doing a lot of science and math, who is both um, non-compliant with regard to the COVID vaccine mandates and seeing this, uh, what was it, Bill? Yeah, Bill 67, the Racial Equity in the Education System Act coming down and going, what do I do? So I, I don't quite understand something. The mandate requires this person to be vaccinated to go. At this point, I think it does, and so you know that's obvious. That just stops like Bill sixty seven is irrelevant, um, as awful as it is, uh, because uh, mandatory vax stops that. On the other hand, there is talk of uh, Canada lifting some of its draconian uh, vaccine mandate measures. Well, then I guess I'll just. just I mean, you know, I don't want to give anybody. Medical advice, but I got to tell you, for me, I, I wouldn't allow, I wouldn't be persuaded by uh, limits on what I was allowed to do. Um, there's a danger for young people here. Young men in particular. Yeah, young men in particular. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And that may answer the question right there. Mm-hmm. Um, as for what to do if it doesn't answer the question, increasingly, it is hard to justify on the merits of what one will learn the presence in these environments. They're actively miseducating. And so it's a racket. That racket has something to do with whether or not you'll be able to get a job. And let's not pretend it's anything other than a racket. Mm-hmm. I mean, and maybe that answers the question. Maybe the point is, should I pay protection? Well, no. In principle, you should not pay protection. 
Do you need to pay protection? Maybe you do. And maybe that's how you'll run your business. And this is that same thing. It's a racket. Should you participate in the racket? In what way would it be good to participate in an educational racket? What would be the most educational thing you could take at an institution that was de that was determined not to educate you? I don't know that that question has an answer. Um, but as you have pointed out here before, uh, this racket uh, went global. Both of these rackets. Uh, well, the 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 racial equity thing. You know, Bill sixty seven is particular to, I guess, Ontario, not even all of Canada, um, but it's spread throughout the West. Uh, I don't know that it's spread in you know higher ed in India, but I also don't know if a Canadian kid interested in science and math if it makes sense to consider going to college in India, for instance. And I just came up with India because they're strong in science and math. But you know, used to be. In the before times, if the problem was, boy, whew, don't know if that's going to be educational, but uh, probably do want to get a formal education, but maybe let it settle a little bit, travel, like, you know, travel for a year or two and like actually really travel and, you know, do woofing or do like do any number of things where you actually just get to engage with the local people and the local culture and the local everything. Well, that's, of course, much more difficult now as well. So uh it's it's hard to know what to do and you know we've got we've got an awesome young man who's going to be graduating from high school here soon as well who is in a similar position with all the sciences and maths and uh, we don't have Ontario bill 67 here but we got a lot of stupid and uh, we have a lot of schools that are requiring uh, vax for uh, for enrollment as well so maybe I should just say what I actually think that's a great idea Mostly. I mean, I'm sorry it's not a simple thing to do here, but yeah. um, I don't think these institutions are in any way worth it. And the fact that they are anti-educating mm -hmm. is the answer to the question. Whether you have the wherewithal to stare down the uh, relic that is the requirement that you have a college education in order to be a participant in polite society or whatever. I don't know if you have the ability to stare it down. I don't know if we have the ability to stare it down, but do I think there's a justification for wasting four years of your life um, in order to get that piece of paper? I do not. I don't think you will end up smarter. And the best thing you can do is probably figure out how to educate yourself because the resources to learn virtually anything you want to learn are out there. And so really, do you need the motivational structure of this institution in order to engage those materials productively or can you self-motivate? Well, and it's, you know, there, there's a social argument to be made just like there is for K through 12 school, right? Uh, that you meet, you meet the people with whom you will make the rest of your lives. That said, there are a couple, three uh, alternatives to Hayzak. Um, thank you. Traditional college that are emerging now that may, may reveal some of the ways to move forward. And I'll, I'll just name the three of them here, and maybe we'll talk more about, about some of them later. One of them is University of Austin, which uh, we've talked about before. One of them is Ralston College in Savannah, Georgia. And one of them is uh, entirely online at this point, and it's not even launched yet. In fact, they're all nascent, um, but is Peterson Academy. And each of these, Jordan, uh, Jordan Peterson's um, virtual, virtual institution of higher ed, 
if you will, that's going to be launching in September. And all of these have approaches, have seen at least part of the problem. And I think all of them have seen a lot of the problem and uh, are looking to, with the recognition that a society as large as the West, if you will, needs uh, functional higher ed in order to help young people uh, become able to do what they need to do in the world, not all young people, but many of them, how can we uh, how can we deal with the fact that our institutions, if they haven't completely failed, which some of them have, are actively failing and seem intent on continuing to do so? Well, each of these three new initiatives uh, does provide some hope. Yep. Next question: How about separating biological sex and psychological sex? Biological sex would be fixed and psychological sex would be fluid. Everybody wins. Pronouns based on psychological sex and sports teams based on biological sex. Nope. We have a word for that. We got sex and we got gender. Yeah, I'm not sure that doesn't describe the way the world was 10 years ago. Right? Biological sex, which I don't think is the right term because um, psychological sex is biological, but genetic sex which yes you can make arguments about ambiguities but genetic sex uh, determines what prison you go to it determines what sports you can participate in you more or less are and have been free to reorganize your behavior however you want um, certainly we had the experience of lots of students who were trans who asked us to you know, I never once was asked, nor would I have agreed to somebody's made up pronouns or they, but I was asked to call, call me she or whatever. And I would certainly do that yep. as a matter of courtesy and human decency. And so I think the thing is that that description there is how it was, right? It wasn't like anybody was telling you, you couldn't transition, right? Or that, um, you know, for most of us, we wouldn't insist on calling somebody who presented as female male because we knew something about their chromosomes. Right. So, but this, I mean, this remind this argument reminds me of trans women are women. No, women is a category. Trans women is a new category that we can, most of us, can recognize as being a thing, but. This is not the place for polite fictions. Trans women are not women. Trans women are trans women. Well, women are women. I agree with that. But I think the point, and we've covered this before, mm -hmm. is for any purpose where you're not treading on someone else's rights, as a matter of courtesy and decency, sure. If, if you... I'm not... I, no, I mean, pronouns is one thing, but but... The sentence "trans women are women" is just false. Um, uh, is that in there? No, you you seem to have objected to what I just said, which is I that. Think, but I think you're imposing something on the question. The question proposes. So this strikes me as exactly analogous to like, well, sex. Okay, why don't we just say, well, there's biological sex or psychological sex? It's like, well, that's like saying, well, there's there's women, there's cis women, and there's trans women. No, there's women, and then there's this other category. Okay, and those are men who feel strongly, the ones who are honest, that they are women and they're not, but they have done what they can to present the world as women. And we can be respectful of that. 
when it does not impinge on other people's rights. But they are not women. And I'm not a cis woman. I'm a woman. Right. So sex is sex. Yeah. Psychological sex, which follows, which is downstream of sex, is also now has looser boundaries. And it's about, you know, also um, how you present and what your interests are and whether or not you're gender nonconforming. And that's that's a gender thing. Right. But I think what the question is getting at is those places where we're not running up against the facts or mm -hmm. providing rights to some people and thereby eliminating rights that other right. people are entitled to. My feeling is for all of those purposes, you know, how do I treat a trans woman, right? I treat that person as a woman at the point that she shows up to sign up for, um, you know, a sport. I stop that. Mm -hmm. Right. At the point that she's convicted of a crime and the question of which prison she should go to comes up. That's not where I am. But my point is, I do believe that we should provide people the right to self-define for, and I hesitate to say all practical purposes, but the basic point is all purposes where you don't force us into a scientific fiction mm -hmm. or into damaging somebody's rights. Well, but I guess that second category is inherently messy. Right. Uh, so I was actually, I was listening to a conversation that uh, the wonderful Dr. Deborah So was having on her podcast with a woman who, unfortunately, whose name I've forgotten. Um, but she is, she has created, she, she's a rad femme. And she and Deborah agree on a lot, but disagree on some things. And it was, I'm, I'm sorry, this is off the top of my head. I don't remember the woman's name. Um, but Deborah, whom we are friends with, um, was was say, was making the argument that uh, actually uh, a trans woman presenting as a woman walking into a man's bathroom is um, going to cause much more disruption in various people's lives, including her own, um, than if she were to walk into a, a woman's bathroom. And her interlocutor, well, I guess it's sort of the opposite. So the guest that she had on her podcast was saying, no, zero tolerance, because um, you know, that's a man, which they both agreed on. That's a man yeah. who was presenting as a woman, and uh, and no woman should ever have to expect that there will be a man in a bathroom that has been advertised as a female-only space. I see the wisdom in both arguments. Uh -huh. And obviously there are some bathrooms where I'm, you know, if, it, if it's a single occupancy bathroom, there's no reason, maybe, maybe there's a reason to still have it be sexed because men are messier about things. Um, but um, maybe it just doesn't matter. Um, in a bathroom with a row of urinals and stalls that have, you know, that start high and end low, I don't think so, no. And in fact, we had a workspace that had just a gender neutral bathroom on one floor and um, and sex bathrooms on the next floor. And our office was on the sex neutral, the gender neutral bathroom floor, and I never used it. I used it once. Like, I don't like this. I don't like this. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about trans women. So like, I don't feel like peeing next to a dude that I don't know. I don't feel like having my pants down next to a strange man. Right. Right. So there, you know, there are arguments on sort of the, on one side, which 
people like rad films will make that say slippery slope no just no never and then you know far over on this side are stupid arguments which we're never going to you know agree to you know whatever you think at whatever moment you just go into that space but over here there's a lot to actually talk about and i do worry that um you know give them an inch they take a mile and once you give up a space you know girls in schools are apparently just not using bathrooms where now you've got gender neutral right bathrooms well, like girls are learning to give themselves urinary tract infections and I, that's probably the least of it i think the right? problem is this is a not solvable problem that the solution to this problem is individual bathrooms right and maybe that's a solution that has to happen anyway maybe it should happen for other reasons i don't know mm -hmm. but the problem is you know there's an argument to be made for parsing it as people who are capable of rape do not belong in a woman's bathroom right so it's a question of like physical plumbing mm -hmm. uh, of the person that is um yeah. there's an argument to be made <laughs> that those spaces were about attraction right and therefore mm -hmm. you know what do you do you know so the point is it's not solvable are you going to exclude gay people because they might be attracted to people in the same bathroom and the, those are supposed to be non-sexual spaces no we obviously don't do that um so I think you have a non-solvable problem, unlike sports and unlike prisons. And Well, at the point that you appear to have an unsolvable problem and there is a tiny percentage of the population and there is half the population who might be at risk with one or the other decision, then it seems you have to go with the decision that protects half the population. I agree, but protects them from what? I mean, let's suppose you have a trans man who presents as a man. Mm -hmm. What bathroom does he go into? Well, I mean, in that case, his presenting is, you know, his preferred bathroom going in there might be the thing that gets him beat up. Right, but he's, you know, as you say, you see the wisdom in both points, which basically means this is an unsolvable problem. I'm not. I'm not sure what point you just you just made. Um, the trans man is a woman, mm -hmm. right? Presenting as a man going into a woman's bathroom. Okay, but there are a few exceptions. Very few. But trans men largely don't pass. Right. But I mean, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm just at the point of I don't think there's a solution to this problem that is simply a right solution. I think every solution that you would come up with causes problems. And so ultimately what we will do and must do is define bathrooms in such a way that this is no longer an issue because otherwise we're going to continue to tear ourselves apart over you know whichever failure mode we've chosen yeah i don't i mean i don't think that's going to happen at the societal level at the sort of infrastructure level uh in which case um 
catering to the needs of a of a tiny minority isn't isn't what we do. That's where I fall out. Um, you talked about this on an earlier po- next question. You talked about this on an earlier podcast. Religion focuses on evil within the person. Cults focus on evil outside the group. Heard it on Jordan Peterson podcast. I don't think there's a question there, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I buy that distinction. Yeah, it seems to me that religions uh, often define an evil outside. Precisely, they're, they're the tribal. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they're exactly. So, yeah. Um, Oh, this, here it is. Bill 67 in Canada is horrifying. Could it happen here? What can we do? Yeah, it could happen here. Absolutely. Yep. What can we do? <laughs> what can we do, Brett? Well, first I would think we would need to come up with some sort of a public square where we could actually have a conversation about the hazard that these things pose. Let's call it Sam is Depp. All right. Let's try that. Awesome. Until we come up with a better name. I think that's a good name. You don't like it. Um, Wait, you know where you can write? You can write into uh, yeah. uh, stop being a nerd at samisdap.com. All right, I'll, yeah, I'll do yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the evolutionary role of suicide, and why does it feel like it and more has been weaponized in modernity? Also, pet the epic tabby. Mm. Yeah, he's sweepy. He's sleepy today. Um. Let's put it this way. Suicide becomes a not very difficult evolutionary puzzle once you understand lineage. Uh, I will tell you that my friend David Lottie and I uh, filed a abstract to give a talk uh, on the question of how suicide could be explained evolutionarily. And it was the only time I've ever even heard of this where qualified people submitted a proposal for a talk at a conference that was just flat out rejected. They didn't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, David Lottie, who, uh, the two of you co-authored your evolution of morality paper, yep. which is excellent. Yep. Um, but anyway, I will say, I think suicide has changed, that modernity has caused something to be triggered in people where suicide makes no sense, but it doesn't mean that evolutionary sense is hard to see um, once you understand that lineages are an actual focus of evolutionary selection. Yeah. Very good. Um, we've been going for an hour, haven't we, Zach? Um, I mean, we've been talking for seven minutes. All right. Oh, I thought it was... Okay. Um, what's that? Um, let's do a couple more questions and then we will, then we will stop. I don't know what this means, but I'll read it. Behavior guide selection. So subsequent antigen exposures elicit second order proliferation. Memory regulating like an evolutionary ratchet. Wait, wait, could you go back to the beginning of that question? Mm -hmm. Behavior guides selection, so subsequent antigen exposures elicit second-order proliferation, comma, memory regulating like an evolutionary ratchet, question mark? I understand all the words, but I, I can't quite... there were quite... like three different yeah. things being brought I mean, This is into... someone who writes who writes in a lot. I, I, I assume you got some, you're going for something good, but neither of us can make sense of it as written. Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry about that. The core of many issues is definition. Can we put effort into a common argument? 
depends on for what. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think, uh, as I've said, often when people have generated their own productive way into some important puzzle, and then they try to share it with other people who've done the same, there's a language barrier. And often they don't recognize it because they forget that they've redefined words in order to make mm. the glossary work, right? Yeah, and it's yeah, very yeah. important. If you're, mm -hmm. you're going to solve problems yourself, you do need a glossary that's consistent. Mm -hmm. And you forget that the words you're using are used by others differently. And there's no getting around the phase where you have to train each other about this is what I mean. You know, sympathy and empathy is one I trip over a lot because yeah. they needed a fix, mm -hmm. um, but it's not a shared fix. Yep. Um, but anyway, the, the point is definitions are very important and we all suffer from very blunt definitions. That is to say, not sharp, right? Because you know, we'll pick a word and that word has some distribution of what people mean by it. And so you say it and it's heard as some sort of vague cloud when the person speaking may mean it in some very precise way. Uh, so these things are really important and they are fundamental. You have to have them in order to make a precise argument. Mm -hmm. and so yes, we are tripping over that all the time. Yes. Um, I don't know this. I will read it. Alternative Climate Science. Do you know the Suspicious Observers YouTube channel by Ben Davidson? Mm -hmm. And the question is, would you consider interviewing him? Given that we don't know, I will just open up a tab so I can take a look later. But um, I will say there are too many things to look at. So again, no, no promises that that will actually end up happening. Um, Two more questions. And then we basically got through everything. There's just a couple of comments here. Oh, someone wants to know Samizdap. It's S-A-M-I-Z-D-A-P-P. -P. That's how it's spelled, right? <clears throat> um, oh, modern women reducing investment for sex. Are we becoming seahorses? No, we talked about that. Uh, we, we went over the seahorses uh, thing. Will the left ever again report anything they don't like? Malinformation, indeed. I hope so. Uh, yeah, we need the, the the left needs to be resurrected because the left, even if you're on the right, the left is an yeah. important force of history. And frankly, if you're Everyone on the right, loyal opposition. All of the no, even beyond that, though, all of the stuff that you on the right are now defending is the the uh, product of past radicals who succeeded. So you need your radicals whether you like us or not. <laughs> and um, so anyway, yes, a, a loony left isn't good for anybody. Yeah. It, it's a disaster. So let's, let's hope so. Let's hope that they do again report things that they don't like. Final question. Oh, we got a few more, but um, final question, because I didn't see these others until just now. Were Triceratops intersex or were they just horny? <sighs> Man. It happened. It did. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Here we are with the epic tabby, who you can see just the back of. Um, <laughs> on a fine Saturday afternoon in spring, we hope that wherever you are listening or watching to this, you are able to be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.